I've been away from you a long time. I never thought I'd miss you so. Somehow I feel your love is real. Near you I want to be. The birds are singing, it is song time. The banjo's drumming soft and low. I know that you yearn for me too. Swanee, you're calling me. Swanee. Hello, uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, we'll be looking at Babbitt by uh, Sinclair Lewis, or at least the first third of this book. We'll be breaking this up into three parts. It's a little bit shorter than Main Street, but it's still a pretty uh, hefty book. I think the audiobook comes in at like uh, four, 14 hours or so. So um, actually, the the breakup here is, is, is pretty Good. The first third really sets up Babbitt's character, I think, and the setting of Zenith. This is our, our first um, Sinclair Lewis novel set in Zenith. We, of course, met Zenith with uh, in Aerosmith and, and I think some other uh, books. Um, I guess I, I guess he invents Zenith, and I, he invents more the state in Aerosmith. I think there's not much about the state it's in. I think it's supposed to be somewhere in vaguely the Midwest here. Um I don't, I don't think we get the geography as much as we do in Aerosmith. But, of course, uh, Main Street is set clearly in a small town in, in, in Minnesota. But this is roughly the same kind of area. It's, 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 it's a little bit more fictionalized than, than Gopher's Prairie was in Main Street. Um, less a, a, like a one-for-one allegory of a, of a town. Um, but it is, and I think that's part of the point, it is just, it's every, like, middle American mid-sized town you know so every place it's not chicago or minneapolis or milwaukee those kind of to cleveland it, it's that smaller city in the midwest that's where it's set and you know, that's what zenith is but anyways the first third of the book more or less sets up this town and sets up george babbitt as his character in fact we spent most of this was just one day in his life the second part which we'll do in the next episode really explores uh, his crisis and his efforts to try to become, you know, to, you know, become part of the town and, and part of its boosterism and move up in the town. And then the final part of the novel deals with the crisis that, that his crisis of faith, I guess. And in a, in a way, this is sort of a novel of religion. It's someone who believes in, in, I guess, the middle America in every way. There's a great speech. He gets, we'll talk about it maybe in the next episode where he's, you know, celebrating uh, Middle America in every way. It's like almost a religious speech. And in a way, this is kind of a crisis of faith. He experiences a crisis of faith, but returns to his faith in the end because he really can't fully turn his back on on this town that, that sort of made him. Um, now, George, I think George Babbitt in some ways is, is a more well-drawn character than, than um, uh, Carol Kennicott. In some ways, I mean, Carol Kennicott's book, well, Main Street's more of a, the story of Main Street, and this is more the story of Babbitt. So we get a little bit closer into uh, his head. Um, I always want to say, although both Babbitt and Main Street are satires, this one is much funnier. This is, it's actually laugh out loud hilarious often, because, uh, you know, it's for a couple reasons. One is like people still sort of talk like Babbitt. I think the, the idea that Babbittism 
is is a real phenomenon it's hard to deny i mean you you experience this when people have conversations they just sort of take the most banal cliched american response to any issue like what they would say what just any average american which the generic american would say about an issue is what babbitt would say about it right and that's really uh sinclair Luce's point is just this again it's like i talked about this a lot in main street it's this reduction to the mean it's this tocquevillian kind of consequence of american democracy where everyone just kind of conforms uh into what's expected of them and in every way um, they, they lose any autonomy they have because of this desire to, to, to gravitate towards the middle. Um, like one thing that's kind of a running joke throughout Babbitt is he always makes promises where he's kind of preserving a little bit of autonomy over himself, whether it's to quit smoking or to go on a diet or to uh, take on a hobby, whether it's baseball or Sunday school or, uh, you know, certain club clubs. Whatever he does, he doesn't stick to it, though. He's like... You know, the American conformity pulls them right back to just the mainstream where anything even little, even the littlest degree that he can step out of his conformity is is taken away almost immediately. He can't stick to any of these promises for very long. But there's another level to the humor here is because, you know, even his ambitious goals are kind of banal in their own way. It's like whether he's a smoker or not smoker. It's pretty much the same kind of, it's got that same middle American, straightforward, uncritical way of, of making decisions about things. And he does it again and again and again throughout the book. And I think it makes this uh, story quite hilarious. Especially his, uh, just his dialogue and the way he talks about things. Um, so I don't know if it's worth going chapter by chapter through this, this book maybe just give you some of the highlights of it um now we're first introduced to his family so the first seven chapters let's take those as sort of a group because the first seven chapters are really a day in the life of george babbitt um his family is it's five people it's the precise right number uh he's got a wife myra um, babbitt and he's got three kids verona uh ted and and tinka um so verona's the younger daughter tinka's the older daughter and uh ted is the son and the ted the ted's in high school and and tink is a little bit older like she's out in the workforce a little bit um and so the day starts with uh, actually we're introduced to zenith first which is presented as the perfect modern town and then we're presented to george babbitt who's into real estate uh we get a wonderful line here where he's uh you know, he's described as a little bit fat, but also like extremely married. It's, a, it's just a wonderful way of putting it. Extremely married um, is, I don't know, for me, it's just a really hilarious way of putting it. It's like saying you're extremely educated or something. It's like, um, it's not clear what that exactly means, but you kind of grok what it means. It, it, it's, it's, it's like the conventionality of marriage in every way. And anyways, we literally start with him waking up. And, he, and one of the first things we see is this modern convenience, this modern consumer device, the alarm clock. And that's another thing about George Babbitt is he just surrounds himself with, with consumer goods. And he thinks that's a sign of his achievement and his success is to be surrounded by these, by consumer goods. And it's part of his conformity. He actually, the, there's a line here somewhere about the god of modern appliances um, being 
you know, something that drives him. His house is totally modern. It's uh, very much 1920s kind of consumer culture. Uh, it's, it's really a text about that. Uh, we get this wonderful bathroom scene where we get all the details of the stuff they have in the bathroom. Um, wonderful, wonderful stuff here. Um, you know, there's even a line here, glasses make the modern man. It's uh, so much emphasis on, on consumption. Now, it actually takes us a couple chapters to move out of the home, out of his house, because he has all these like morning rituals with his children, whether it's reading the newspaper or lecturing his family members about their behavior and their future and their jobs and their schooling or whatever like that. Um, you know, his son is named Ted after Theodore Roosevelt. Again, like if you do the dates, this is written in 22. I think it's said 21 or so. You know, this kid would have been born when Teddy Roosevelt was the president. And of course, Babbitt names his son after the president of the time. What more American? How more American can you get? sits there and reads the newspaper and then is complaining about socialism constantly. He has no idea what socialism really is or about, just that it's un-American and bad. And, you know, he is kind of of the business class. He's like a small business owner. You know, he runs his real estate firm. But it's, uh, you know, he, he's, his, his kind of criticism of socialism are, are, again, just him wanting to agree with whoever would be around him who might be in his peer group. Like there's and there's this leads to weird contradictions in his thinking. For instance, uh, in one little speech he gives, he's uh, anti-socialist, but isolationist, but at the same time anti-Soviet. So in the same sentence, almost he says like, America should just leave to its own borders and not get involved in European affairs. And then the very next sent like I think it's even in the same sentence or the very next one where he, say, where he says, you know, we should intervene and stop the Soviets. It's it's like so bizarre but you see that so alive today I, that's what i one thing i love about this book is like i'm not, i think it's more so than in main street babbitt feels so much like it could have been written now maybe change the language and the setting and the technologies a little bit but you could have the same kind of person babbitt is still with us he hasn't gone anywhere just everything all his talks are very conventional it's hard to put into words until you read it but it's you know there's nothing he says at least in this early part of the novel that doesn't seem to be almost scripted by like or it's almost coming out of like central casting if you were to ask like i want an american patriot you know or american business middle class business owner you know what they would say it's exactly like this almost word for word and i think sinclair lewis does such a good job of of the dialogue in this book it's, it's really wonderful um and yeah just so much to enjoy in this this novel uh so he drives to work and uh we see his neighbors and he's surrounded by people who kind of don't quite fit in the way he fits in they're kind of foils to his own conformity uh we got littlefield who's got a phd in economics who he kind of sees as you know someone he should look up to and he's educated but then on the other hand you got these bohemians who dress, uh, you know, not properly, and they don't keep their house up to modern standards and everything, and he's very critical of them. Um, uh, what else? He goes to the gas station, discusses Republican primary with them, and, and he says, what America needs is a business administration. And that's, like, again, something you still hear when people say, like, oh, we need a politician who will treat American government like a business. That's what that means. Like, we just need someone who's pro-business, you know, pro free trade, you know, whatever. Like it's like Republican, right? He's, he's like a Republican through, through and through, uh, at least in this part of the novel. He plays with 
nonconformity during a crisis in his life, but it doesn't stick. It's like just a passing fad, like so many other fads that he embraces throughout his, throughout our our our, our life, our, our time with with Babbitt. Um, so eventually, he goes to his company, and he's got this real estate little company with a handful of employees. There's like an in-house salesman. There's an out-on-the-town salesman. There's secretaries. The, and he thinks they're all kind of crap and, and bad employees criticizing them. And there's a kind of patriarchal, paternalistic kind of attitude to his employees that, uh, you know, is kind of rooted in some aspects of American capitalism. You know, the welfare capitalist ideal almost is it there. But, it, but he doesn't have like any vision with it. It's just, you know, if they just worked harder, then they could, you know, be better workers. It's, it's very nebulous. There's a nebulous philosophy throughout Babbitt's uh, mind. Uh, he, the one person he really does like is the, like the secretary woman because she can really dictate a good letter. Like, um, his, his standards in that way are kind of low. But with the salespeople, he's always like, well, you didn't sell enough houses or you didn't get quite the price I wanted. And it's, it's again, it's not, there's any, we're not really any real criticism there of their, of their work. He's just got very visceral criticism. Like one guy smokes too much, even though George Babbitt smokes all the time. So we get a little chapter, I think it's chapter four, where he's, um, uh, we get him kind of at work selling, writing advertisements or selling advertisements. And, um, and then he's just kind of, his mind wanders and he wants to spend lunch with his best friend, essentially, a guy named Paul Riesling. And Paul Riesling is a pretty important character in the story. So we'll, we'll say more to him. He's, in some ways, he's got he's babbitt to a certain degree but it doesn't like the facade doesn't hold like babbitt's much better at maintaining the facade of that even though you get a sense that deep down babbitt's not happy with his life that's why he's always trying to change it but he changes it in other ways that are just essentially conformist but reasoning he's got a more radical discontent in him and he's more vocal about it but he is his best friend and they decide to meet for lunch um now, throughout all this, Babbitt sees himself ideally as a servant of society. There's even a chapter later on where he talks about religion, and or Sinclair Lewis talks about Babbitt's religion. He says his religion would be to be useful to society in a way, and beyond that, he'd just be whatever he was raised to be, Presbyterian or whatever. So then we get the whole lunch scene um, uh, where he goes to this athletic club. And while he's going there, he like frets about smoking, and he actually stops to buy a, a like an electric cigarette lighter for his car. Like, I guess this is in the early days of those kind of cigarette lighters. And he, he gets it, and immediately he starts fretting about smoking too much. And he's like, "I'm gonna cut down on smoking." He has different schemes to do that, but like immediately he makes a decision to quit smoking. He's like lighting up another cigar, um, just out of habit. Like uh, again, habit and conformity and convention always draws him in. Um, and at one point he thinks like, I'll just, you know, like while he's smoking, he's thinking like next in the few, I'll just, I won't buy tobacco anymore. I'll just borrow it. You know, and that will force me to stop smoking so much, but I think he never really quits, um, at all. Um, so he goes to this athletic club, which is kind of like a, you know, it's, it's an athletic club, but no one there is really an athlete. It's like really a place just for middle-class people to meet and talk and have their lunch. Um, and it's really such an example of Zenith. It's like supposed to be a model of what Zenith is about, which is really not that much. Um, 
it's a hangout of the booster. So boosterism is going to be a major theme of this book, as it was a minor theme, I think, in Main Street. It's a much more major theme in um, Babbitt, uh, the boosters. But also community organizations. That's another thing. I think that's uh, such a big part of like urban America at the time is these clubs and the Elks or the Boosters Club or the Chambers of Commerce, employers, organizations. And they also have working class organizations, but Babbitt wouldn't have much to do with those. But you, you have a lot of these middle class uh, organizations that are trying to create some kind of community in cities and Babbitt feels the need to be part of all of those. I think he tries maybe hardest with Sunday school. There's a whole interesting uh, subplot about his efforts to try to promote, uh, to apply like the logic of the business class to the promotion of Sunday school. It's really kind of wild. But I get ahead of myself. Um, so anyways, he has this talk with uh, Paul Riesling um, and it, it ends up, it starts out, or it starts out very banal, like all other conversations that he has. Very hilarious, though. It's hilarious in its conventionality. But, um, you know, another funny thing is he said he was going to go on a diet, but he's going out to lunch with his friends. So he obviously overeats instantly. Right away, he starts overeating. But he does talk about his ennui, and Paul sort of goes deeper into this and kind of says, like, basically, like, life's boring and, and shitty and work sucks stuff that babbitt would never quite say publicly but he says it quite verbally and he says paul says to him like people just get bored with life and i need some way to escape that and whether it's his family now babbitt and paul are very different like paul has affairs that's a major character difference between the two and he's again much more open with his discontent but um George would never have an affair, right? He would never even consider it. Um, but actually, during this conversation, he calls George a simp, which is, a, I always thought kind of more of a modern word. I didn't know it had this root, it had its roots going way back, but its meaning essentially is the same. It's like, you're, a, you're, you're just a simp for the system, in a way, which is, I think, in a way, I wonder if Paul Riesling is somehow Sinclair Lewis's point of view uh, on some of these issues because it's our first really effort to break free of this trapped feeling we get again it's very funny to watch it'd be a great comedy right if you were to watch it as a comedy like like the office or something but paul riesling breaks through it momentarily and says like really this this world's kind of shit and and it's about time you grew up and learned about it um and anyways, they, what they do is they, they don't like have any big revolutionary plans. They just plan a trip. And they said, let's go to Maine together. And we'll bring the family, but we'll go first. We'll spend like a week just like detoxing. And, and well, detox is the wrong word because they plan to drink. Let's just, we'll go there early. We'll go fishing and we'll just have a, like a men's week out. And then the family can show up and we can finish the vacation together. And he's like, yeah, let's do that. Let's go along with that. So this is kind of setting up the where the plot's going to go. So we have a few more chapters about the day. I think it's in chapter six. He he does like some work. He scolds one of his employees. He meets like his father-in-law, who's actually the, you know, the other owner of the, of the business. And uh, yeah, he scolds the outside salesman for bad sales or whatever. And then he returns home. And does these like lame exercises, like waving his arms around like an idiot for for two minutes. Prepares for dinner, and, and then we get this conversation where they're talking about buying a new car, and it's all like academic, 
for him because he's he knows he's going to buy a car at the proper year, you know, and he can't buy the car until the old one's gone through a certain number of miles or whatever. But the kids are like, yeah, let's get this car, and they're 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 talking about it earnestly. And then Babbitt's like, well, we're not getting a car this year. <laughs> um, and we get his night reading and things like that. And the son, they have a he has a fight with his son over his son wanting to go to correspondence school instead of like college. And Babbitt's really kind of. He, he doesn't really know what to make of this because on the one hand he's like I went to the UW you don't got really got the state he's just or, sorry I went to the U we don't get that really the state here um, I guess it's Winnie Mac like I guess but he I think he just calls it the U throughout Winnie Mac is the is the state is defined in in Aerosmith um, but at the, the other hand though like he he, he wants to go to university because that's what like people do they go to university, and but at the other hand he's like maybe this correspondence school is like a sign of good old American like ingenuity it's like an American invention and he can't help but like um, the idea of correspondence school. It's all it's all really funny. They're, they're, this this book has so many uh, great laughs I think throughout it. I guess it's going to be a quick episode because I've been kind of zipping through it, but. All I can really recommend, I can just say I recommend you read this book because it's, I mean, I don't think there's any deep themes here that we haven't already kind of introduced. Um, it's just such a good diagnosis of, of American culture at, at this point. And I think very much of our day, I think there's so many parallels to the 1920s in our own time, like the rural urban kind of culture clash, the nature of this very neoliberal type of politics had its predecessors in the 20s this kind of useless politics that aren't really helping people but very contentious in a way uh kind of the cold war mentality of a sort even though this is before the cold war but this idea of uh, there's a bunch of radicals here but it was you know they, they weren't a benign threat then and i think now the left is growing to be a more significant uh, force in american politics um, so there's kind of a response to that by the business class and effort, uh, like a, the corporate ideology trying to defend itself from, from legitimate criticisms. Um, certainly the culture class, religious revival. Um, but yeah, so much the culture wars, like the twenties are so much a culture war era as they are, as, as it is now. Uh, anyways, after this first day, we get a, so the first seven chapters, the first hundred pages, almost hundred pages, are just this one day, but then we get a few short chapters where involving just like the trip out to Maine that was previously planned and a party, and the party is good because you know liquor plays a big role in this book. Alcohol is a, a pretty significant theme, and it's like easy to get. Like you just ask the right guy and you can get the alcohol. So even though it's during Prohibition, Main Street was set mostly pre-Prohibition, and then we get a little taste of Prohibition towards the end, or like hints of it. But this is set purely post-Prohibition, so you know they have to like go through different channels to get get their alcohol. But it's all easy to get. It's like not hard, and everyone's drinking constantly in the book. And the only difference is those who kind of are conscious of. Them, them as sort of stepping over a boundary when they're drinking and those who are like completely indifferent to it. Um, but they have this party and, and that's something that, that Babbitt takes very, very seriously is he takes seriously his like social status. And, and especially in part two, we're going to see different meetings with people that either he's meeting with people 
below what he sees as the station and he's really self-conscious about that or he tries to meet people above his station and doesn't quite perform to their expectations i suppose um but here's our first like party i guess and during this party they do they talk they do like some spiritualism and talk to ghosts and again that's kind of presented not as a really creative and interesting sort of exploration in the spiritual is presented just as something people middle class bougie people do in a party um but anyways during the party he actually uh eventually talks to his wife about going to Maine earlier. He finally broaches the subject of this Maine trip and is saying, let's let me go earlier with Paul. And, and she agrees. So then in the final couple chapters I want to talk about today, uh, Babbitt goes to see Riesling. Um, and they leave together to go to Maine. Um, and we, they spend, they, they transfer in New York and we get, we don't get much of their trip in Maine. It's all just mentioned like in one paragraph, what they do in Maine before the family comes. It's basically like they go fishing every day or whatever. We get more of the trip together to that. And they spend like, they have a transfer in New York and they, they finally get some escape together, but, and, and the family comes later. So you kind of would expect a little bit more of this trip and what it means for them. But I do get the sense that there it's it's sort of revives babbitt but in a way that's also very cliche it's like the way middle class people talk about vacations no matter what actually happens on the vacation they'll come back and say oh yes i feel so refreshed after that vacation and wasn't the grand canyon beautiful and oh i was so relaxed whatever they're doing right if they go to the grand canyon they'll say it's beautiful if they go to paris they'll say it's a majestic city if they're going fishing they'll say it's relaxing if they go to the beach they'll say i got great sun it's like you predict it's like you know like the vacation experience is predetermined for you there's nothing really authentic in it um and maybe if we got riesling's point of view we might get a different perspective on it but we we don't we mostly get babbitt's point of view um, but he feels calm by it. That's that's the expected result, and that's what happens. But that's how it always is with with Babbitt. So, um, anyways, that's I guess I thought I was going to say a little bit more about this, but I I didn't kind of do the chapter point by point thing because this book doesn't really lend itself to that. There's not that much plot going on. It's really Babbitt's life and then a brief crisis in faith. There's really not that much to say about the plot, but. Um, but we'll get more into that in the next episode. I'm sure we'll, we'll cover chapter. That'll be chapters 12 through 21, I guess, of the, of the novel. Second third of the book. And I look forward to... I might have a little bit... I might quote from it a little bit more in that section. I, as much as I said this book is funny and enjoyable and a, a riot to read, I didn't quote any of that for you. Maybe because I, I want you to kind of explore it yourself. I know it's a popular novel and many of you have maybe already read it. So, But if you haven't pick it up because this i used to say oh like aerosmith is the one to read but no babbitt's the one to read babbitt if you have to pick one sinclair lewis book to read read babbitt um that's my clear preference at this point um so much fun um but anyways i guess that's going to be it for now uh send me your thoughts to you can email me at 100 pagescast at gmail.com uh or you can leave me a tweet uh i guess it's at evan lampy one uh, or just leave a comment or a review at iTunes, whatever. Anything like that will help me out, and I would love to hear your feedback and thoughts about Babbitt. 
So that's gonna be it for now. I'll see you next time. Swanee, how I love you, how I love you, my dear old Swanee. I'd give the world to be among the folks in CIX. I even know my mammy's waiting for me, praying for me down by the Swanee. The folks up north won't see me no more when I get to that Swanee.